Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer believed to have killed as many as 21 prostitutes in the last 22 months. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them, were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. They call it the work of the Green River Killer, probably one man who has murdered 13 young women near Seattle. Case unsolved. All deeply troubled sexually. Since 1978, 17 men have been convicted of killing 10 or more people. Historically, uh, they kill certain types of victims, women, homosexuals, and children. In Seattle, another grim discovery today. Explorer scouts have found the remains of another human body buried on a wooded hillside near Seattle. Police in Washington state believe they found the remains of another victim of the so-called Green River Killer. Another victim has been identified in the nation's longest list of unsolved murders, the Green River Killings. 37 women have died, nine missing, all thought to be victims of the same killer. One lucky break. One individual out there that knows in their heart who's done this and has been reluctant to come forward. This suspect, this individual, has had a remarkable string of luck. In the early 80s, police in Washington State tied the deaths of 49 young women to the so-called Green River Killer. The killer apparently left the region in 1984, but the number of murders is on the rise again, and police fear the killer may be back.
Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our second look at the crimes of Gary Leon Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. Before we dive into it, a couple of show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and MeWe. Just look for Ian Totten, author. We've actually had something of an explosion in new fans on the Facebook DeathCast group this week, so thank you all for joining. Got some good people in there, post some pretty fun and disturbing content, a lot of serial killer memes and other dark jokes. You can also find me on YouTube under Ian Totten Author. Every episode of this show that comes out also goes up on YouTube simultaneously, so if you're more interested in watching video versions as opposed to sitting there with earplugs in and listening to a podcast, go check that out. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me under Corpse Creek is the name of my company. If you'd like to help with the production of the show or just say thanks for what you do, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. It's my official website. Uh, There's a donate button on there. Click the link. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. It's much appreciated. If you're listening to this and you enjoy the sound of my voice and the topics I cover, you should go to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Click follow, share on social media really does help the show out and I appreciate it. Lastly, if you would like to purchase any of my five novels that are out there, that's the Blood Gods Trilogy, which is a dystopian vampire series, the House of Silver Doors, which is a supernatural Lovecraftian tale of a town possessed, or the Throwaway Girls of Olympia which is the story of a small town in the 1970s besieged by an unknown serial killer. You can find all of them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever else you find your books. You can also go into bookstores and ask for them. They will order them. Also on CorpseCreekPress.com, there will be autographed versions coming here in the near future. Alright, that's it for plugs and show notes. Did you get yourself something to drink, relax, sit back in a chair, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the Green River. When we left off last week, there were six confirmed bodies linked to the Green River Killer and a number of other girls who had gone missing. And it was around this period of time Time, late summer, early fall of 1982, that the FBI profiler John Douglas first offered his opinions on who it was that the police should be looking for. It should be noted that Douglas based a lot of this on the crime scene photos of the victims, and that despite what television and news media portrays, more often than not, the information in these profiles is way off the mark. It has gotten slightly better in the last decade or so, but especially back in 1982, the profiles were largely garbage. And I know there's going to be some people who are like, oh, you know, it's John Douglas. You know, he knows what he's talking about with all this stuff. He understands some of these things, but the reality is each one of these cases is unique in and of itself. So while he might be able to speculate about certain aspects of a particular crime, 
the fact of the matter is there is no way that he can nail every aspect of a particular suspect. And realistically, if you go back and look at profiles that he did versus the individuals who were later caught, there are a few things in those profiles that are right. But by and large, they're not. And that's not to take away anything from Douglas and the Behavioral Sciences Unit. They have made some major advances in the apprehension, tracking, and understanding of serial killers. They, you know, he was, he and his partners were really the first ones to look at all the various different types of serial murder and be able to, you know, lump them together into different classifications, which, by and large, are correct as we understand it. However, this narrative that's out there now that he's, you know, basically a legendary individual who's infallible is completely undeserving, specifically when you look at the stuff he has done in the last... 15, 20 years where he comes out on the side of a defendant and everyone takes that as being absolute gospel truth when the reality is the defense paid him and they're not going to put out something that is detrimental to their client. A perfect example of that are the three convicted murderers in the West Memphis Three. They're convicted, they're still convicted, Douglas was hired by the defense and came out and said, oh no, they couldn't possibly have done that. It's bullshit. Anyways, he looked at the victimology back in 1982 when the first six victims had been found and deduced that they had all been prostitutes or street people and that their age and race did not seem to matter to the killer. He also felt that no matter how savvy these individuals were, the killer was able to outsmart them. He thought that the public's belief that the killer might possibly be a cop was probably on target. He also felt that the individual who was responsible for these crimes was the sole individual responsible for them and that he was also comfortable at the crime scenes as well as unconcerned with being discovered either with the bodies or at the crime scenes themselves. He also stated that the killer most likely felt no remorse over committing the murders and that he felt that he was doing a service to mankind by killing these prostitutes. He also felt that the killer was not seeking notoriety or anything of that nature, and that in fact he did not want the bodies to be discovered, and that when they were discovered, he had to seek out a new manner of disposing of them to hinder the police or anyone else from finding them in the future. He also felt that the individual responsible for the murders had either lived, worked, hunted or fished near the Green River, that the man was highly mobile and that he would drive a conservative vehicle that was most likely three years old and ill cared for. And I'm going to quote at this point. Your offender has, in all probability, prior criminal or psychological history. He comes from a family background that includes marital discourse between his mother and father. In all probability, he was raised by a single parent. His mother attempted to fill the role of both parents by inflicting severe physical as well as mental pain. She constantly nagged her son, particularly when he rebelled against all authority figures. He had difficulty in school, which caused him to probably drop out during his junior or senior year. He is average to slightly above average intelligence. Concerning the victims themselves, Douglas believed that the killer was attracted to women, but felt, 
quote-unquote burned by them. And he also went on to state he believes he was fooled one too many times. In his way of thinking, women are no good and cannot be trusted. He feels women will prostitute themselves for whatever reason, and when he sees women openly prostituting themselves, it makes his blood boil. He also felt that the killer came to the strip because he had recently suffered a failure in a relationship. He seeks prostitutes because he is not the type of individual who can hustle women in a bar. He does not have any fancy line as he is basically shy and has very strong personal feelings of his inadequacies. Having sex with these victims may be the initial aim of your subject, but when the conversation turns to play for pay, this causes flashbacks in his memory of times past with other women. These memories are not pleasant. The straightforwardness of prostitutes is very threatening to him. They demonstrate too much power or control over him. Douglas further went on to state that he believed the killer was quote-unquote mentally comfortable killing these women and that he was comfortable doing it because of these feelings that arose in him when money was demanded. In describing the killer, Douglas said that your offender will be in relatively good physical shape. He will not be extremely thin or fat. He was somewhat of an outdoorsman. We would expect him to be in an occupation that requires more strength than skill, i.e. laborer and maintenance. The problem with this description is that, according to many different accounts, it described more than half of the individuals who lived in Kings County at that period of time. So basically, it was such a wide net that there was really no way to narrow down or zero in on any one individual. And that is what I was talking about when I was discussing how off the mark many of these profiles can be. This one specifically, it's such a wide, open description of an individual that it's next to impossible to narrow it down to one person. He may as well have said this individual probably lives inside of a building, drives a vehicle, and is a city dweller. That's how sparse the profile was as far as getting down to the nitty-gritty of the individual. I will say in Douglas's defense, however, that criminal profiling at this point in 1982 was a very, very new science. And the individuals who were doing these profiles were a very small group. It wasn't like it is now where they have a whole division inside the FBI dedicated to only this type of work. Douglas and his colleagues were kind of seen as rogues and mavericks in that they believed that they could quantify characteristics, be it physical or life traits, to specific types of crimes and link that all to a specific kind of offender. And he is even said, and I've read it in many different areas, that profiling is not an exact science, it's more like an art form. Looking at this profile, you can really see that, especially if you know anything about the individual who was eventually captured for the Green River killings. Gary Ridgeway does not fit most of the parameters of this profile. There are a couple things that he is spot on with, specifically about, you know, failed relationships and being comfortable inside the crime scenes, not having any remorse for the victims, etc. But by and large, this was completely off the mark. One last thing concerning this profile that Douglas said was he believed that the individual was Caucasian in his mid-twenties to thirties, but he cautioned against ruling out older suspects as individuals who commit these type of crimes have no burnout, i.e. it's not something that he's going to age out of, which has been the case with some killers. 
He also stated that the individual they were looking for was nocturnal and was in constant motion, always on the prowl for victims. One thing that came out of this is that Douglas had a number of ideas of how the media could help flush the killer out into the public eye, stating that if the media were to basically come out and say that advances in technology and science were making it easier to figure out who was responsible that the killer might in fact interject himself into the investigation therefore tipping his hand and this isn't a bad idea as far as it goes it has worked in other cases most notably one that my friends over at the Coast Conspiracy guys just covered was Ian Huntley, who killed two young girls in Britain back in the early to mid-2000s, he did, in fact, interject himself into the investigation and, in fact, tried to learn what the cops knew concerning DNA. And these questions of his actually made him more suspicious to them. So it was a good ploy to maybe attempt to try and use in this case. Unfortunately, this killer was not the type of individual who wanted recognition for his crimes. On September 20th, 1982, 15-year-old Deborah Lorraine Estes disappeared. Deborah was described as something of a wild child who looked at life as a game and she oftentimes ran away from home when her parents did or said something that she disagreed with. The last time she had run away from her parents' home was in July 1982 when Deborah came home with a woman by the name of Becky and asked if Becky could live with them. Now, Becky was a few years older than their daughter, and the Estes flat out said, no, not happening. Because of this, Deborah ran away with Becky, and Becky eventually found a an apartment in one of the local projects. Unfortunately, Deborah ended up meeting a man whose name has, to the best of my knowledge, not been publicly released. She told people that this individual who was in his 20s was her boyfriend, but reality was he was her pimp. And Becky and Deborah were soon seen at all of the various hotel rooms, bars, and strip clubs along the SeaTac. In September of 1982, Deborah had gone to a King County deputy and told them that she had been hitchhiking when a man in a white pickup truck opened his door and agreed her to take her to the SeaTac Mall. The man had driven elsewhere before demanding that Deborah perform oral sex on him, after which he raped her. The description that she gave of this individual was that he was around 45 and 5 feet 8 inches tall with thinning brown hair and a small mustache. Unfortunately, despite witnesses putting the truck in the forested area where Deborah said the sexual assault happened, she used a false name and then bailed on the police after showing Deborah a laydown which is a group of mugshots put onto a table from which the witness is to pick the individual who most closely resembles the person that either committed the crime against them or that they saw committing the crime. Unfortunately for Deborah in the ensuing months, there were reports that she had been seen walking the streets and in fact... Her name was signed in at a number of different hotels along the strip inside the guest registry. 
so it was very difficult to discern whether or not she was actually missing or had just you know kind of gone underground Linda Jane Rule 16 went missing on September 26 1982 sometime in the afternoon and when she didn't come back to the apartment that she shared with her quote-unquote boyfriend the individual thought that she had probably been arrested as in his own words she should not have been working during daylight hours so that right there you know completely blows the first major hole in the profile that was created by john douglas as we have a victim who is taking during daylight As with all of the other previous cases, however, no one was really certain of what vehicle they saw Linda get into. On October 8th of 1982, 23-year-old Denise Darcel Bush went missing. Denise was originally from Portland, but because of how little she was making in that area, she would sometimes travel out to Seattle, despite the fact that really all the prostitutes in the state at this point knew somebody was targeting them. The last time Denise was seen, she was crossing Pacific Highway South at South 114th Street. Unlike some of the other victims, however, at the time of her disappearance, Denise was not thought to be out actively looking for Johns. In fact, it was stated that she had actually gone out to go to a convenience store. Somewhere between October 7th and October 9th, 16-year-old Shonda Lee Summers went missing from the exact intersection that Denise Bush had vanished from. Remember, Denise disappeared on October 8th. So either at the same on the same day that Denise disappeared, or within a day or two of that, at that very same intersection, Shonda vanished. And I want to point out here that the reason I'm not diving into all of these victims is because there's so many of them, but it's also difficult to find reliable information on some of them. Yeah, and you're starting really to see, I hope, you know, a pattern in a lot of these girls' lives and either that they had difficult home lives or they rebelled against their families and ended up out on the streets with a quote-unquote boyfriend, sometimes with a drug habit, and the next thing you know, they're working as prostitutes, sadly. Something else to note as well is I'm talking about these girls' disappearances, but not of their recoveries, because many of them were not recovered quickly, and unfortunately, the police only had missing persons reports on them. And given the transient lifestyle of women who work as prostitutes, it's very easy for them to pick up and move from one area to the other. So despite the fact that a lot of women were now going missing, they didn't have bodies showing up in the woods or in waterways. So while a lot of the police suspected that these girls were being taken by this killer, they couldn't absolutely prove this. Sometime between October 20th and October 22nd, 1982, 19-year-old Shirley Marine Shirell vanished as well. And Shirley was known to work in Portland in an area known as the Camp, which is basically where prostitutes worked Portland at that time, but she was originally from Seattle, and she mostly stuck close to the areas that she knew. Now, a number of different women went missing in December of 1982, 
and some of them were put onto the list of Gary Ridgway victims, while others were not, as Ridgway himself is not known to have confessed to their murders. Becky Marino, a 20-year-old woman, if you remember, she was Deborah Estes' friend, went missing on December 2nd of that year. Becky's last known location was signing into a hotel along the SeaTac Strip, and it was her name that was linked with Deborah's, as both Becky and Deborah's names were found inside of the guest book together. Remember, Deborah had gone missing quite a while beforehand, and much like Deborah, there were reported sightings of Becky following her initial disappearance, but this has never been confirmed. One victim who has been tentatively linked to Gary Ridgway, but never officially confirmed as a victim, was a young woman by the name of Trina Hunter who went missing from Portland on Christmas Eve of 1982. Trina has a bit of a different story in that, according to a family member, she was forced into prostitution by relatives who kept her locked in their attic and only allowed her out when it was time for her to go to work. According to this individual, these relatives also beat her mercilessly, and Trina apparently had gone to the police to inform them of this, however, the police did not believe her. Christmas Eve of 1982 does hold a distinction in that there are two confirmed victims of the Green River Killer. One was a 15-year-old girl by the name of Colleen Rockman, who you see pictures of this girl. She's the epitome of a 15-year-old. She's kind of heavy set with braces. She is known to have run away a few times. The last one, her father actually filed charges as she had taken so much stuff from the house, and he did this in the hopes of bringing her back home. Also on that date, a 20-year-old woman by the name of Sandra Denise Majors went missing. And like a few of the young women who were on the official list of Gary Ridgway's victims, it is difficult to find information on Majors. As some sites and articles and files list her as an official victim of Ridgeway, while others do not. And that's something that you see the more you look into this case, is that on some quote-unquote official lists, one victim will appear, while on others they do not. And the way I look at it, unless they were in a completely different town from where Ridgeway was known to have been active on in that period of time, they more likely than not did end up as his victims. Uh, you know, an example of this is the Trina Hunter, who really vanished right around the time of these other two girls. Personal opinion, I think it's probably doubtful that she was a victim of Ridgeway, unless he confessed to it police just have not officially announced that. Sandra Denise Major, however, probably was a victim of Gary Ridgway. And I know people are thinking, you know, he killed two people in one day. That's, you know, kind of unbelievable. As police would learn, and you will really get into in other episodes, Ridgway had a nearly insatiable sexual appetite, and that's what these cases really were. These were sex crimes. Uh, You know, he had uncontrollable libido, which is why he was consistently going to prostitutes to quell those urges. But he also had an extreme disdain for the women that were performing the acts for him. They were unclean in 
his eyes. So it's really, you know, not only possible, it's highly probable, but that he did, in fact, take multiple victims in a day. There are other cases of this throughout history. A notable example is Ted Bundy, who is known to have killed multiple victims in a single outing. And again, Bundy is known to have had a nearly unquenchable uh, sexual desire. So in that regard, both Ridgeway and Bundy are similar. 1983 dawned and there were no new cases of women being reported missing, at least not any that fit the overall profile of the ones that the Green River Killer had taken. And it's important to point out here that despite the fact that these women were had gone missing, you know, a lot of people seem to have this idea back then, and some still do to this day, that the police really weren't doing enough to stop the crimes through late 1982, early 1983, and that could not be further from the truth. Remember, as I talked about last episode, a number of the detectives who were assigned to the initial Green River Task Force had also worked on the task force to hunt down the perpetrator of the Ted Burgers, who was, again, Ted Bundy. And these individuals really were working quite a lot, following leads, trying to discover where various girls had gone to if they could discover it. But this was hampered because so many of these young women, just because of their lifestyle and what it was that they did for a living, their friends would not come forward to the police and say, hey, so-and-so went missing. She was working at a pro- as a prostitute. I know she was over at- on the SeaTac a lot. We haven't seen her in a couple of days. Then, as now, sex workers were very mistrustful of the police, which also I touched upon last episode. There's a lot of historical data to back up the fact that police either won't believe the women may take advantage of them or will arrest them for selling their bodies for money. Which to me is odd because realistically there's no difference between prostitution on the street or in front of a film camera, i.e. pornography. And I know there's people going, wait, 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 wait a minute, there's a big difference between, no there's not. If you are performing sex acts for money, you're a prostitute. And in fact, pornography comes from root words in ancient Greek, one of which meant prostitution, the other of which meant to record, be that in a drawing or in written word, or in our times, on film. And these actresses who, you know, perform in these films... They're really afforded every protection of the law that regular citizens are, but the general consensus among most, you know, prostitutes is that the police don't see what they're doing as being legal, therefore they have no rights. It's a sidebar, it's a tangent, I know, I apologize, but the way I feel is they're one and the same and that If you are going to protect one group of individuals who are doing a thing, you need to protect all individuals who are doing it. I don't care that one is doing it on film for the masses to see and the other one is doing it, you know, in secret in order to support themselves. It's all the same. And in terms of the Green River Task Force, specifically during this period of time, They were doing their level best to try and find the individual who was responsible for these killings, but it was hampered by this mistrust that the prostitutes held for the police. 
and you can actually find pictures from early 83 of the various detectives who were assigned to the task force in their headquarters in the Seattle courthouse. And there are maps on the wall with all of the victim's pictures on it, descriptions of where the victim was last seen, what they were wearing, all sorts of information. So they really were working to try and solve these killings, but it was compounded by the individual who was doing them as well as by the prostitutes' own unwillingness to talk with the police. And for the prostitutes themselves, a lot of these young women felt that they would be able to recognize who the man that was stalking them was. There'd be some telltale sign that I don't, I shouldn't get in the car with this person. But we're going to discuss it later. The Gary Ridgeway, while not the sharpest knife in the drawer, was a very cunning, almost apex predator in his methods of operation. So the idea that the police would not be able to find out who was doing this makes sense. It's not like the killer was leaving handwritten notes or clues or was known among the various young women who he was picking up to be a dangerous or odd individual. On March 3rd, 1983, 18-year-old Alma Mae Smith disappeared from South 188th Street and the SeaTac Highway. Now, how Alma ended up working as a prostitute is kind of unknown, although this is just conjecture on my part. It's more likely than not that there was something going on in her home life in Walla Walla, Washington, that led her to start running away from home somewhere around 7th or 8th grade. And if you see pictures of her, she doesn't have that, you know, quote-unquote classic image of what you would, many people envision a prostitute to look like. She's a very pretty young woman. And in fact, apparently the area that she was staying at along the SeaTac was at a fairly expensive hotel. It wasn't one of these dives that, you know, was charged by the hour or anything like that. It was, you know, a fairly upscale place. But for whatever reason, she ended up in with the wrong crowd and out in Seattle with another woman looking for Johns on March 3rd. She was last seen getting into a blue pickup truck with a nondescript man, and unfortunately, she was never seen again. Sometime in March, another young woman by the name of Dolores Williams went missing. She vanished from the same general area that Alma had been last seen at, Dolores was a 17-year-old of African-American descent who vanished at some point in the early part of the month, but it's difficult to pinpoint when exactly that it was she had gone missing. Most reports have it that by March 8th, she was noted by other prostitutes as no longer being in the area. So it's very likely that she disappeared around the time of Alma's disappearance, you know, somewhere between March 3rd and the 8th. And while all of this, you know, these two disappearances happened, the police of the task force still had all of the previous disappearances from the year before that they were looking into in the hopes that some of, if not all of these girls, would turn up alive in a different city. Unfortunately, though, most of them did not. Some 
point during this, a 14-year-old by the name of Wendy Steffens went missing. Again, she's one of those who a few lists have her down as a victim of Ridgeway, while others do not. This was followed by Gail Lynn Matthews, a 23-year-old who was last seen getting into a pickup truck on April 10th. On April 14th, Andrea Marion Childers, 19, disappeared from the SeaTac. On April 17th, 17-year-old Sandra K. Gabbert went missing from Pack Highway in South 114th Street. Sandy came from a single-family house, and she dropped out of school at some point because she was bored with it. It's unknown whether or not her boyfriend was in fact her pimp, but it is known that the two of them were living in one of these kind of flea bag apartment slash hotels along the SeaTac Strip. It should also be noted that the area that she disappeared from really was a hotbed of activity as far as where the Green River Killer was plucking his victims from 144th Street South and SeaTac seemed to be his main hub as far as where he would strike. Only a few hours removed from Sandy's disappearance, 16-year-old Kimmy K. Pitzor got into a pickup truck on 4th and Blanchard in downtown Seattle. Now, if you see pictures of Kimmy, she almost looks, you know, elvish. She has a very impish demeanor about her, and she's one of those that you look at and you just say, there's no way a girl like that could have been prostituting herself at 16. But unfortunately, like so many of these young women, she did and she was. Apparently, she had been doing it for some time as she had worked in Portland before she and her pimp moved to Seattle with the idea that the money was better there. As in a couple of cases now, Detectives had the briefest of descriptions of a pickup truck. But much like the profile that John Douglas had done on their killer, the vehicle description could have fit any one of thousands of vehicles in Seattle at this period of time. Kimmy K's boyfriend slash pimp described the vehicle he saw her getting into as being a older green truck with a camper on the back and primer paint on the passenger door. On April 30th of 1983, 18-year-old Marie M. Malvar went missing. It should be noted that when she vanished from South 216th Street and Pack Highway, that a pickup truck was seen with a camper on the back and primer on the passenger side door. Marie Malvar's disappearance is different from others, however, in that I don't know if he was her boyfriend or pimp or both, but the individual who that Marie was with that has been described in most accounts as her boyfriend actually paid attention to the vehicles that she got into and would do his best to write down the license plate numbers of those individual cars. For some reason, this young man actually followed this pickup truck, and he noted that he was able to see Marie in the cab of the pickup truck, and she looked to be somewhat agitated, which I assume to mean she was gesturing with her hands and possibly it appeared that she was talking in a loud voice. Eventually, 
the boyfriend had to stop at a stoplight this after the driver of the truck turned around in a parking lot. But he saw that the vehicle had turned left off of Pack Highway. So as soon as the light turns green, he takes off, he turns left where the truck went, and is surprised to discover that he can see no taillights in front of him. So he drives one way down the road, looking to see if he can find where the truck would. He goes another way down military, and sees no vehicle. Unbeknownst to him, Marie and her abductor had turned off onto a small side street that was pretty much hidden from view unless you knew it was there. So the boyfriend ended up going back to the hotel to wait for Maria to come back. Unfortunately, she never did. Four days after Marie went missing, her boyfriend finally went to the police and informed them that she had gone missing. However, he did not inform the officers that Marie was engaged in prostitution. And it was noted that he seemed somewhat evasive. Not long after this, Marie's father came and picked the boyfriend up as they had not heard from her, and it should be noted that Marie had a fairly strong bond with her family, and the father, her boyfriend, and Marie's brother drove around, and almost as if by chance they ended up seeing the small South 220th place street side and turning down. Going down this road, they spotted the pickup truck that the boyfriend had seen Marie getting into and that he had followed, and they inspected the truck before calling the police. And this individual who owned this house was talked to by police, who described him as not being nervous, only curious as to why they were knocking on his door. This individual stated that there was no woman inside of his house and there had not been any women inside of his house in quite some time. Naturally, if you have not figured it out, the man who answered the door was Gary Ridgway. And the reason that he was, you know, completely unaffected by the police knocking on his door is because he felt no remorse or fear of being caught. However, at the time, the police did not know that he should be, you know, their number one suspect because there was other things going on in Seattle around this time. There were other individuals who were stalking prostitutes, one of which was a man by the name of Thomas Armstrong III, who was arrested in April of that year after tossing the body of a prostitute from a third floor balcony. And police did consider him a likely suspect at first, although it was soon found that there was no way he was the man they were looking for. There were other serial killers active in this same area at this same time, and their crimes led over with ridgeways, so this only helped to muddy the waters in that some witnesses described a nondescript white male driving a pickup truck, some witnesses described someone and something else entirely. And in the last two missing person cases, that of Kimmy K. Pitsor and Marie, detectives believed that the person driving the pickup truck knew that he was being followed and therefore would not have killed the victims and instead had let them out which allowed the real killer to come along, scoop them up, and have his way with them. And I can understand why the 
detectives would think that way because if somebody knows they're being followed or that they've really been seen and scoped out, they're far less likely to commit a crime. That being said, this individual who was committing these crimes was really the ultimate predator and he had no fear that he was going to be captured or that people would see him because he was able to blend in so well to his surroundings. On May 3rd, 1983, 21-year-old Carol Ann Christensen went missing. On May 22nd, 1983, 18-year-old Martina Teresa Arthur Lee went missing. On May 23rd, 1983, 18-year-old Cheryl Lee Wims went missing from the Central District in Seattle. On May 31, 1983, Yvonne Antosh, a 19-year-old from British Columbia, went missing. One thing that police started to note was that most of the victims were disappearing from cross streets on Pack Highway, mostly south 100. 44th Street, South 188th Street, and South 216th Street. But unfortunately, even with this knowledge, the police were still a very long way from catching the individual who was committing these crimes, as there were just so many men stopping by to pick up prostitutes. And so many of them were not being found either alive or dead. The only exception to this at this period of time was Carol Ann Christensen. She was the 21-year-old. She is actually last seen leaving the bar from where she worked. That was on May 3rd. Her body was found in a wooded area on May 8th. But beyond her All these other girls just seem to be vanishing into thin air, as it were, with a number of different people believing that, you know, they probably had left the area for greener pastures, which I suppose was an easier thing to imagine uh, rather than admitting to themselves that, hey, this person that I know probably got in the car with this guy. Sometime between the end of April and June 1983, a 15-year-old high school dropout by the name of Carrie Ann Royce disappeared. On June 8, 1983, 19-year-old Constance Elizabeth, I'm not going to butcher this name, it's N-A-O-N, disappeared. Unlike some of the other girls on this list, she also had a straight job working in a sausage factory. Constance, however, was known to have a pretty horrific drug problem, and because of this, she had turned to prostitution. Her car, a 15-year-old Camaro, was found inside of a Red Lion parking lot in June of that year with most of her possessions inside of it. It is known that on the date of her disappearance, she had been planning to go to the factory to pick up her paycheck, and she had also called her boyfriend to let him know that she would be there in 20 minutes. It's more likely than not that that had been her attention, but that while she was in the parking lot, killer who was prowling the area saw her and it's very likely that he had had contacts with her in the past and assumed that she was out working and therefore picked her up. Constance who as I said had a drug problem may have seen this as a way to get some quick money and agreed to go with the man. However again she was not seen from that day onward. Police had really hadn't put it together at this point, but the killings were slowly moving south along 
the SeaTac Highway, almost as though the killer knew when one area was getting too hot for him to take victims from and decided to preemptively move away from it, only so he could go back to it at a later date. And I think this really shows just how cunning and animalistic the Ridgeway's instincts were. Because if a number of girls disappeared from an area but, and they just kept disappearing, eventually, pardon how I say this, but the food supply in that area is going to disseminate and move away from it because it knows that's a dangerous area for it to be in. But in moving away from one area after a few abductions, Ridgeway was allowing the girls to get a sense of safety and well-being back amongst themselves so that they weren't too spooked that they fled that area. And I know that's an awful analogy to use, but it's the most fitting that I could think of. Another would be that if every day somebody's getting robbed in a single parking lot, eventually people are going to stop using that parking lot and move on to another one. But if the robbers hit there once or twice and then move on to a different parking lot, the people who use that lot, while they might be a little bit more cautious, they're not going to outright abandon it because, hey, it happened once or twice, but now it's not happening here, it's happening over there. Doing this, as I said, allowed Ridgeway to keep the girls at ease and you know, avoid detection by police before moving back to that area for, to take a victim or two. On July 18, 1983, 22-year-old Kelly Marie Ware disappeared. If you see pictures of Kelly, she is what would best be described as a natural beauty, and people that knew her and had interactions with her said that she really stood out in a crowd. She had this certain flair about her and this look that both men and women took a notice of her. In fact, if you find pictures of her online, she stands out from the other victims just based on her looks, the way she carried herself, and as well as how she dressed. But when she disappeared, very few people took notice of it. Because like a number of these girls, she was an unknown to the area. She was originally from Portland, and as such, really did not know any of the other prostitutes on the strip. So, we are going to leave it here for today, mid-July of 1983. So far, at least 31 young women have gone missing, with seven bodies having been found, and the police are no closer to catching the perpetrator now than they were at the start of the thing. We will pick it up next week as the spate of disappearances continues, but also the bodies begin to resurface. Until next week, if you enjoy the Death Cast, please like, subscribe, leave a five-star review. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Till next week, stay morbid. Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com smarttoilets and discover what you've been missing.
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.